The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me, a world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventure's pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. I gotta say, Orlando is awesome! It's not as nice as Cancun. The radical left, their corporate allies, the liberal media, have tried to cancel me, censor me, expel me, shut me down, stop me from representing the people of Missouri, stop me from representing you, and guess what? I'm here today, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm not backing down. For the first time ever, CPAC is not in our nation's capital. That's because they won't let us anywhere near our nation's capital. Maybe if CPAC had promised to burn down buildings and tear down statues, they would have let us up there. We won the election twice. I mean, you know, think about it. Twice. The task for our movement and our party is to stand up to this destructive agenda with confidence and with resolve. As we stand together and defend liberty, defend the Constitution, defend the Bill of Rights of every American, in the immortal words of William Wallace, freedom! <laughs> oh my God. <coughs> what was that? We watched CPAC so you don't have you to. Know, Ugh. They obviously didn't have acting school at uh, Harvard or Princeton or Ted Cruz. You well, know, they it's all interesting. Went. Yeah, no, you so so it's so it's so funny there these anti-elitists as they like to call themselves. So, so just in those opening clips which were chosen really for well the fact that you had two people that were seditionists uh, there, uh, one person that was talking about tearing down statues when of course his party destroyed, tried to destroy uh, the United States Constitution and tried to disrupt the peaceful transition of power. So you had first, let's see, you had Ted Cruz, uh, Mr. Uh, anti-elitist who went to Princeton and Harvard. And then you had Josh Hawley, Mr. Uh, Mr. anti-elitist who went to Princeton uh, or who went to Yale and then Stanford. Uh, and then you had Tom Cotton, who talked, poor guy, he can't even get close to Washington because they're not tearing things up. Oh, no, you didn't tear things up. In fact, 300 of your supporters That's are in jail now. 300 Trump supporters are in jail now. Uh, Tom Cotton, a Harvard boy. Uh, and then you have Donald Trump, again, Mr. Populist, uh, who, who not only went to an Ivy League school, but now lives at a country club. And you have Ted Cruz saying that we're, we're not uh, the country club Republicans. No, you are. In fact, your guy that you worship, that you kowtow to, that insults your wife, that insults your father's memory, uh, and even accused your father of being a murderer, you still worship him. You still worship him, even though... He says that your father killed JFK and he attacks your wife. Uh, you say that uh, it's the Democrats that are like country club types. That, that No, your guy lives not only at a country club, at his own country 
club. In a town that doesn't want him there. Yeah. And so they're just, you know, I've, I've heard, and I don't know this because I went to the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, and I went to the University of Florida, Go Gators. Uh, so I don't know this, but I've heard that uh, Ivy League people can really be elitists and look down their noses at the end of, uh, you know, uh, working class people, middle class people. I, I mean, I don't know because I didn't go there. Uh, though I will say that, you know, uh, from a young age, Ivy League people, they've all worked for me. They're pretty good workers. Uh, roll Tide. Uh, but, Mika, they spent the weekend attacking country club types. No. Hello, Donald Trump. And attacking Ivy League people. And this one guy comes out and he deliberately says, we don't want to talk to Ivy League people. And I... Somebody told me he went to Princeton and Harvard. I checked it out, and he went to this oh, guy. Oh, you mean one of the moderate or one, one, one of the yeah, speakers one of the, or one something. of the speakers, right. So they're all Ivy League Fox. boys. Like, they're all, they're all these, these Ivy League types, and they, they're such elitists. Take that down. That's enough. They get it. Oh. They're such elitists that they think their supporters are really, really stupid. And I... I understand Ivy League. You get in the Ivy League, I guess. I don't understand it because I went to Alabama all tight. But I guess you go to Ivy League, you start thinking you're smarter than everybody else and that everybody else is dumb. I guess that's what you think, Ted Cruz. I guess that's what you think, Josh Hawley. I guess that's what you think, Tom Cotton. I know that's what you think, Donald. Yeah. Uh, and you think everybody's stupid. And so you spend all weekend attacking country club types and Ivy League. You're all Ivy League elitists. <laughs> you all pass tax cuts for the richest people on the planet. You attack big tech, but you pass tax cuts that actually allow Amazon to pay zero in taxes while working class Americans and middle class Americans that you're supposed to be protecting actually pay more in taxes than Amazon when it comes to income taxes. It is such. I mean, you lie so shamelessly. You're all Ivy League brats. And you lie so shamelessly about being man of the people, Ted Cruz. Yeah, really, Princeton boy? Really, Harvard boy? Man of the people. You're against country clubs. Oh, yeah. Oh, are you? Okay, well, Donald Trump lives in country clubs. How many, how many days out of his presidency was he staying at his own country club? Josh Hawley, man of the people from Missouri, who went to Yale and Stanford is now talking about, oh, since poor me, I'm just, I'm an outsider. They won't let me talk. They won't let me. Please, please. This anti-elitist stuff is so shameful. And you really do. I guess, Mika, that's my takeaway from this weekend. They really do. They really are Ivy League elitists who think that their followers are too stupid to actually read up about them on Wikipedia or are too stupid to realize the tax cuts they passed under Donald Trump made every one of those big tech monopolist oligarchs richer. I mean, my God, uh, Bezos, because of the tax cuts, because everything else, that guy made like, what? 
$6 billion on one, in one day last year. And his company paid $0 in income taxes last year because of Donald Trump, Ivy League boy, Ted Cruz, Ivy League boy, Josh Hawley, Ivy League boy, uh, and, uh, and, and who, who am I missing? All of them. Oh, oh, well, and of course, Kennedy, John Kennedy, who, I'm your dog, 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 yeah, yeah, y'all, oh, yeah, oh, that dog won't, won't hunt. That dog won't hunt. And then you look at tape and like from 2040. So, well, of course, I went to Oxford and I went to Oxford <laughs> University and I am, you know, I'm a Democrat and I will be voting for John Kerry. We have windselled together uh, <sighs> around Nantucket. And uh, uh, I must say, Madiket is a bit better uh, as far as the wind coming in east, the eastward. I mean, come on, guys. <sighs> <laughs> at least take a couple of acting classes if you're going. Like, it's just, at this point, you're so shameless. Your anti-intellectual BS is so shameless that you just humiliate yourself. That's what I took out of the CPAC. Well, it kind of sums up everything. And, and aren't you glad you didn't have to watch oh, this weekend? It was, um, yeah, <clears throat> very They're clowns. sweaty. And They're all clowns. With us, we have White House reporter for the Associated Press, Jonathan Lemire. Founder of the conservative website The Bulwark and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind, Charlie Sykes. Hey, Charlie, Charlie, I'm going to cut before we introduce everybody else. I'm okay, going to cut you I off. Have two more. Now, Charlie, I hope, I mean, maybe you, I don't know, maybe you went to an Ivy League school too. I don't know. I went to Alabama and I'm proud of it. I love Ivy League schools because, you know, like I said before, I've had people at Ivy League schools that are pretty good workers. They've been working for me since I was 23, 24. So I like Ivy League. But these guys go up and they're these elitists talking about, uh, you know, our anti-elitists attacking Ivy League schools. And they went to Princeton and Harvard. They went to Yale and, and Stanford. It's really, again, Ted Cruz. And the, I mean, Cruz mocking him being a deserter. Leaving his state, a seditionist and a deserter, leaving his state while people are freezing to death. And that's a punchline of a joke at CPAC. These people, I mean, I got to say how I just I don't know how how we were ever members of that party. I just don't know. I, get, I, I, I don't recognize it at all. OK, and, and you left out one thing. Remember, Ted, Ted Cruz, who went to Cancun, was staying at the freaking Ritz Carlton. So man of the people. Um, who's talking about it? We are not the country club party when the guy, look, I mean, how many times can you point this out? Donald Trump lives in his own country club. I mean, it is as ridiculous as you could get. But, you know, I mean, they're all like, you know, playing. They're, they're all, they're going through the role. They, they're, you know, look, this is, you know, what really struck me about CPAC was this is all culture war all the time. It's all Trump all the time. It's all demagoguery all the time. There are no ideas. There's no policy. They were unrepentant. They are unreflective. No, here you're having the CPAC event, and we are, what, a couple of months out from the the attack on the Capitol. We have 500,000 dead Americans, and you would not know any of that happened. So it's all like, I am the man of the people. Here are the people you should resent. Here are the people you should blame. And so you really mm -hmm. got kind of, you know, the, the, the mask of, of what conservatism has become ripped off. And, and, and by the way, Joe, your, your, your point— 
over the weekend, I kept saying to myself, how was I ever in the room with these people? How did I ever, how did I ever, uh, was I ever aligned with them? Why did I ever think that I shared values with these people? Because you see them up on the stage, just strutting around and playing and there is no principle, there's no consistency, there's no policy, and they're living in an alternative universe. I mean, you would think that there would be a moment we'd say, hey, maybe we ought to rethink, maybe have a little bit of introspection about the sedition, about the white supremacy, um, about the fact that we you know, failed to protect you know half a million Americans from dying. None of that, no reset, no looking in the mirror, except that, yes, Ted Cruz, man of the people, freaking Ritz Carlton. We are not, you know, the country club party. And then, of course, they bring in the orange God King with their with their orange idol oh. uh, who lives in a country club. I mean, I mean, it's it's beyond parody. I, I heard this, yeah, by the way, they, uh, CPAC described uh, described as the insurrection after party. That wasn't me, but I, I thought that was a pretty good. Uh, it was a pretty good description that uh, that here here you have the people who are so invested in denial and delusion that they have that event couple of months after the attack on the Capitol. I'm sorry, you, you, yeah. you, got, you got me going too early in the morning here. No, no I I agree. And Mika, it is. Here, here we are uh, less than two months after an insurrection against the United States of America, and they're giving standing ovation and, and worshiping a guy uh, who, again, led that insurrection, who was begged by Kevin McCarthy to call off his terrorists, and he refused to do it. In fact, got very angry at Kevin McCarthy and said, well, I I guess they're more upset about me losing the election than you are. Well, we also have with us member of the New York Times editorial board, Mara Gay, and national political correspondent for The Washington Post, Dave Weigel, joins us. Good to have now, you Dave, all Dave actually did go to CPAC. And Dave, I saw, I saw some of your reports, uh, some interesting <laughs> theories about who really is president right now and uh, like something about the Pope and uh, uh, it, it, how, how big was the QAnon presence this weekend? It was that was fairly limited. Right. But this is this is the degrees we're talking about are that QAnon conspiracy theorists were definitely uh, kept out of there. I saw uh, one activist pretty well known, the guy who people think is JFK Jr. I saw him inside one day and then I saw people uh, people reporting that he was not allowed in the next day. The conference itself was pretty good at policing real fringe stuff. There was a big rally outside. Uh, I'm not sure how much coverage it got, but while the motorcade was coming, there was a rally of a 150 or so people. And I saw the leader of the Proud Boys was there. I saw QAnon signs. I saw conspiracy theories. Um, so there was more um, sanitization, I guess, in the building. But you, you saw it in the clips. The premise of the conference was still the election was probably stolen. Uh, and whatever happened on January 6th, it wasn't our fault. Those were two themes. And uh, there was really, I think, maybe two people who kind of challenged, challenged that premise. It was either not discussed or, or was shared on stage, uh, despite the fact this was, this was kind of a theme of the weekend. A lot of people were watching via streaming. There were conservative streaming services that had to cut away at various points, either from interviews or from panels, because uh, in the real world where uh, lawyers are, are watching for people who uh, spread misinformation about election companies or say the election was stolen, uh, there are consequences for lying about this. Uh, if you're the president, former president, I should say, uh, repeatedly saying that you won the election, that, that you're going to win a third time in 2024. Uh, I, I guess the consequences has already been, been been meted out on him. But it was really about the overall tone of the conference. Uh, the, pr the premise 
And you heard this reflecting the audience was that, uh, well, something happened. Donald Trump is not president any, anymore, but he surely didn't lose the election. Wow. Uh, well, here we go. Um, it was really hard to believe this is what we had for four years. Here's some of former President Trump's hour plus speech yesterday at CPAC, complete with an enemies Tell list. Tell how Nixonian Instead of attacking me and, more importantly, the voters of our movement, top establishment Republicans in Washington should be spending their energy in opposing Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, and the Democrats. The Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey, the warmonger, a person that loves seeing our troops fighting, Liz Cheney. The good news is in her state, she's been censured, and in her state, her poll numbers have dropped faster than any human being I've ever seen. So hopefully they'll get rid of her with the next election. Get rid of them all. For the next four years, the brave Republicans in this room will be at the heart of the effort to oppose the radical Democrats, the fake news media, and their toxic cancel culture. I want you to know that I'm going to continue to fight right by your side. We will do what we've done right from the beginning, which is to win. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. We all knew that the Biden administration was going to be bad, but none of us even imagined just how bad they would be and how far left they would go. Joe Biden has had the most disastrous first month of any president in modern history. That's true. In just one short month, we have gone from America Yeah, let's just turn him off. I can't. I mean, seriously, I blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. It's I can't I can't listen to it. You know, um, it really is hard. Margay, that was that was painful. That was a Ugh. that was a long four years. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, Mar, is he's talking about, oh, we've got the Republican Party. We don't need whatever. Well, this was like the most hardcore of the most hardcore wing of the Republican Party, self-selected Trumpers who knew he was going to speak and he still only got 55% of the straw vote. And somebody called and said, how is that? I said, well, you know, if Barack Obama could run another term and they had a straw poll at a pack, Barack Obama would get about 90%, maybe 95%. I mean, for Donald Trump to be sitting at 55%, I mean, I'm not so sure. Uh, in fact, I know that's those numbers are much lower than I'm sure he and everybody else there was expecting. That's true. But at the same time, it's hard to miss the fact that Trumpism has won. And, you know, it's it's amazing as a woman watching that footage because it really is just mm -hmm. like a festival of toxic masculinity. And you're watching this. And then <laughs> after everything, Donald Trump gets up there and starts talking about, you know, gleefully talking about bragging about how he owns the Republican Party. And so all those men that got up there before him, I assume, I assume he was you know, one of their, their keynote speakers, uh, 
were essentially bragging about how they got owned by Donald Trump. And on top of everything, you just have to wonder, I mean, these people call themselves leaders. I mean, it is really the most cowardly form of political leadership we have ever seen. They can't stand up to him. They can't stand up to his movement. And they can't even bother to tell his supporters the truth. Yeah. And, you know, um, if, if you look also uh, at all the attacks uh, that were were being launched against Joe Biden, um, I mean, we showed the polls last week. This is The Hill uh, uh, and their Harris poll that actually has Joe Biden at 59 percent uh, and disapproval only 41 percent. A Pew Research poll that was taken uh, right after the uh, insurrection, Donald Trump's insurrection, had him at 29 percent, uh, disapproval at 68 percent. He's probably up in the 30s now, high 30s, mid 30s, high 30s. One or two might even have him in the low 40s. Rasmussen has him at 98 uh, percent. So we'll have to look a little more closely into that. But um, but again, it, it, it seemed like such an extraordinarily irrelevant, uh, irrelevant uh, uh, occurrence. Uh, but obviously, when you have a guy that tried to um, uh, commit insurrection against the United States of America, and he speaks for the first time since that insurrection, uh, that actually is news. So if you're sitting there, why are you playing? Because that's like, you know, Benedict Arnold had, had been invited to CPAC after uh, he, he uh, switched sides. We probably we probably be running Benedict Arnold's uh, two hour rant as well. Uh, Jonathan Lemire. So you covered Donald Trump uh, four years in the White House and on the campaign trail. Uh, what did you what, what were your notes uh, coming out of CPAC and his speech? What, what did you take from it? Well, first of all, Joe, the first stretch of it was actually remarkably low energy. And Republicans that I was hearing from suggest sort of were breathing somewhat sighs of relief that maybe he wasn't going to go all scorched earth. That, of course, changed when he unfurled the enemies list. But you make a good point about this is the most Trump crowd you could imagine. And yet he only pulled a little more than half uh, of that straw poll. Um, but still, right now, he is still shaping the, the present and future of the Republican Party. He made no mention whatsoever of the events of January 6th, but repeated time and again the big lie. The idea, of course, that he won, falsely claiming that he won that election. And, and that is going to make things difficult for Republicans to ever try to turn the page, the subset of, of the members of the GOP who want to move past Trump. He's clearly trying to send that message that he's not going anywhere. Yeah. And, and also, uh, Jonathan, uh, we're talking about the, the Biden White House, uh, their reaction to the speech and how they're going to respond. Sure. Well, they, of course, have been studiously trying to ignore all things Donald Trump uh, in the last few weeks. In fact, the current president, Joe Biden, uh, is not even uttering Donald Trump's name when he can help it. Simply referring to it as has him as the, the former guy. They paid no attention to the impeachment trial outside of releasing a statement when it was over. Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Friday indicated that there, no one would be watching uh, the events of CPAC over the weekend. They weren't concerned about what he was going to say. Joe Biden himself spent the weekend uh, in in Delaware. Uh, but of course, they are mindful simply of where Trump could take the Republican Party. And could this efforts, their efforts at bipartisanship, which to this point have stalled, it doesn't look like the COVID relief bill is going to pick up any Republican senators. You know, is that going to be that much harder if Trump tries to step back onto the stage in a more visible way as much as they won't try to engage? Yeah. And, and, and finally, how are they going to what are they going to be doing this week? What are you expecting uh, their message to be over the next week? 
Well, they don't want to talk about Donald Trump. What they do want to talk about are two key things. First of all, that COVID relief bill, March 14th is the deadline they've set to get this done. That's when a lot of these unemployment benefits start to expire. That's now two weeks away. Uh, so the clock is very much ticking there. It, of course, has passed the House. We, we talk about, I'm sure, the minimum wage being tossed out of the Senate bill by the parliamentarian. Uh, there's still work here. Senate Majority Leader Schumer says he's convinced he can get this bill on Biden's desk in two weeks. And of course, the vaccines. With the good news of the Johnson & Johnson approval on Friday, that's going to be the White House messaging today, is that they feel like they feel confident, quietly confident, that within the next six weeks, two months, that they're going to have a surplus of vaccines. There'll be more actual doses of the, of the vaccine than people who are ready to take them. So it's still a distribution issue, to be sure. Yeah. But they feel like this is a key moment, and they can start really actually turning the corner on the pandemic. Fantastic. Hey, Dave Weigel, uh, talking about uh, the CPAC convention, other than uh, adoration for a guy who tried to overthrow the United States government or at least commit insurrection against the United States government, there seemed to be a few policies that were breaking through some of the speeches over the weekend. Uh, you had the attack on high tech, which Donald Trump slammed home last night, what uh, Josh Hawley and others have been talking about all weekend, going after big tech and Section 230. Uh, you had, of course, attacks on China, uh, much less ambiguous than Donald Trump, who one second would be bragging about what a wonderful cake they served President Xi and the next talking about how he was, you know, a bad guy and the next talking about how they were doing a great job cooperating with the United States. But it was a real anti-China uh, tact taken by most of the speakers at CPAC. Uh, and then finally, of course, uh, a, a lot of talk about opposing uh, Joe Biden's immigration policies, uh, sort of the open border approach to that. Those were three uh, policies that I picked up, all very uh, Trump-like. What did you pick up there? Uh, I'd add to what you were saying, uh, criticism of, of expansive transgender rights. So there was a, there was a panel about uh, the way that this has been attacked most recently. Remember, four years ago, it was uh, preventing tra uh, trans people from, from using bathrooms of the, of the gender that um, the, the gender they identify with. Uh, the issue now is whether trans athletes would be allowed in sports with the gender they identify with. And the president, uh, the former president brought that up in his speech, which was fairly new for him. Uh, but you're, the immigration issue w weighs over all of that because immigration was something that was very much fought about at, uh, in the conservative movement at CPAC for a long time on the premise that uh, there's a reason Republicans are not winning the Latino vote. Um, there, there are there are voters who might, might vote for us if we don't have if we don't have such a draconian policy. Should we change that? Uh, and Trump, I think, has hardwired the conservative movement, the Republican Party of the moment uh, to be very to be restrictionist. And there, there you didn't hear any of that talk you would have heard uh, pre-Trump. Uh, but but you haven't heard that uh, all year. I mean, generally, the Republican response to a lot of Democratic legislation has been to introduce an amendment saying this money can't be used for undocumented immigrants. Uh, there was a messaging. Uh, that Rick Scott used, that, that Ted McCarthy used, which it, which is Democrats are opening the borders and closing schools, uh, and and things like that. So running immigration and sort of uh, nationalism through ev through every issue is something that Trump changed in the Republican Party, and no one was contesting that at CPAC. And, uh, I, and you were mentioning the polling there. I would add to that part of the poll was, do you want the Republican Party to follow Donald Trump's agenda? Ninety five percent of of attendees said yes, and. Do you, uh, you know, do you approve of what Donald Trump did in office? That actually rose from 95% last year to 97%. And think of Donald Trump's last year. <laughs> what, what did, you know, beyond losing the yeah. presidency, uh, managing the pandemic, 
this was not a final year of, of a presidency that that was that I think is going to be looked on as a success. What it did do was it, it was it was uh, it involved you know cracking down immigration policy, halting green cards, halting uh, refugees, things 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 of that nature. Uh, that is stuff where if you'd gone to CPAC six years ago, I think half the crowd w- or half the speakers would have had a different position and no longer. Yeah. No longer. The Washington Post, Dave Weigel, thank you for your reporting. And still ahead on Morning Joe, one of the Republicans that got name checked during former President Trump's CPAC speech last night. Congressman Adam Kinziger will be our guest. Plus, as Jonathan Lemire mentioned, the race to vaccinate Americans against the coronavirus got a new boost over the weekend. Thanks to Johnson and Johnson. You're watching Morning Joe. We'll be right back. The International Rescue Committee is a critical organization working in more than 50 countries, responding to the world's worst humanitarian crises. The IRC serves people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters, responding within 72 hours after an emergency strikes. They stay as long as needed. Right now, in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine, families are experiencing adverse winter weather like heavy rain, frigid temperatures, and snowfall on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many makeshift camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions. Some people are living without reliable electricity, while others can't afford to buy fuel for the heat source they do have. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild their lives, including essential winter items like emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, winter gear, and cash assistance. For example, even just a $14 donation can provide a temporary shelter for a displaced family. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. First, CPAC is not the entirety of the Republican Party. That's number one. Number two, political organizations and campaigns are about winning. Over the last four years, we lost the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the presidency. No, that has not happened in a single four years under a president since Herbert Hoover. Now, if we plan to win in 2022 and 2024, we have to listen to the voters. We had economic policies that were working. So if that's the case and we can speak to those policies, to those families, then we'll win. But if we idolize one person, we will lose. And that's kind of clear from the last election. I don't think he'll be our nominee for the reasons I've said. Over the last four years, we've lost the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Political campaigns are about winning. Our agenda does not move forward unless we win. We need a candidate who can not only win him, himself or herself, but we also have to have someone who lifts all boats. All right. So that's Republican Senator Bill Casty of Louisiana and uh, Charlie Sykes. Uh, he was sounding um, rational and... Uh, yeah. It's all very disconcerting, but it does remind you that there were seven Republican senators, I think, that actually voted uh, to convict, which, again, um, that doesn't sound like a lot unless you've actually served in the Senate or like I did in the House and understand that usually nobody breaks away. Uh, So the question is, is there a schism in the Republican Party? And. Uh, where are people like Bill Cassidy and Ben Sass and Mitt Romney going to end up? 
Well, uh, you know, first of all, um, it's good that they're speaking out. It is great that Bill Cassidy has not knuckled under, that he's not walked all of that back. You know, Adam Kinzinger, you know, continues to push ahead. But uh, here's the, the the bad news is the Republican Party has completely once again surrendered to Donald Trump. And it is really amazing when you think about it, that that it was just a few weeks ago that the United States Senate held a trial about whether he should be disqualified from any position of honor. And seven Republican senators voted to convict Donald Trump. And yet, what do you see yesterday? The Republican Party, uh, both the grassroots and much of the establishment rallying around him. Look, the Republican Civil War lasted, what, you know, maybe two weeks, three weeks. Um, the, the moment that then Mitch McConnell essentially said, yes, absolutely. Even though here's a, here's, here's a guy who was morally responsible for an attack on the Capitol, somebody who had uh, lied about the election, uh, supported and encouraged sedition. But absolutely, I will vote for him if he's the nominee in 2024. You realize that the Republican Civil War may go on, but it's 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 over. I mean, it's it's been lost. Um, this party is completely Trumpified. And the problem is whether Donald Trump runs or not, the party has, I was going to say, held is is held hostage by Donald Trump, but they've done it voluntarily. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you, you probably saw Nikki Haley's comments afterwards. I mean, Nikki Haley said, you know, he's done. We need to, we can't make this mistake again. And she's out there with a tweet immediately. Like, what a great speech, Donald Trump. You know, Nikki Haley is an, another one of these Republicans who just cannot choose a lane. They can't stick with it. So good on Bill Cassidy continuing to, to press this. But the reality is that he and Mitt Romney and Ben Sass and Adam Kinziger are a small minority of the Republican Party right now. Well, you know, it's so interesting, Nikki Haley and, uh, and Tim Alberta's piece uh, actually criticized Donald Trump, said it was time to move on. Uh, mild criticism uh, and then asked if she could meet with Donald Trump, just like Kevin McCarthy did after he criticized Donald Trump and said he was responsible for the insurrection. Uh, and Trump would not uh, meet with Nikki Haley. So now she's trying to get back into his good graces, which more again, it, it's, it is it is bizarre. I mean, the whole thing has been bizarre. I, I understand, even though I was repelled by it, uh, people that were kowtowing to him in the Republican Party when he was president of the United States. I thought it was grotesque. At the same time, you'd say, OK, well, they're just they want stuff for their district and they want to be close to power. And but here's a guy who lost the House, lost the Senate, lost the White House, has been impeached twice, led an insurrection against the United States of America, refused to guarantee a peaceful uh, transfer of power, uh, botched uh, 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 the pandemic, 500,000 people dead. Historians will certainly uh, blame him for a, a good percentage of that number. And there's still this guy with no power. They are still all bowing and scraping to him. It is just, I, I, I must say, I don't get it. It's remarkable. It's, it's really lazy politics, too. I mean, I think we've spent four years plus at this point kind of reading the tea leaves, watching every move that some of these Republicans make, hoping, you know, that if we lower the bar uh, nearly to the, to the floor, that they might meet that standard to stand up for democracy over Trump and Trumpism, and they have still failed. And so it really does make me wonder if maybe uh, those who love democracy, love this country, uh, Democrats and Republicans, if maybe the battle is best, best won at this point, just in taking it to the American people directly. 
talk to voters in these districts, explain to them or understand what they want beyond Trumpism. Um, they probably care about a minimum wage. That's the irony here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this nonsense is unfolding at a time when Americans are out of work, they're sick, they're dying, and they're out of work. So I actually think that there are parts of not just the Democratic agenda, but certainly a more moderate Republican agenda that would appeal to large numbers of Americans, even within Donald Trump's base. But how do you reach those voters directly? Because it's time to make the case to the American people directly. I've completely lost faith in that we're going to be saved as a society or a country uh, by the courage of of these individuals. Look at them. They're without shame. So I think that road is, is really over at this point. With Ivy League degree, without shame. Um, for those Republicans that were on the stage at CPAC, I love what Maura just said. And it actually, it echoes what, uh, I, was, I was talking to uh, somebody who used to be very involved in Republican politics and has run, uh, helped run presidential campaigns and worked for Republicans. Uh, and uh, he said to me, uh, something along the lines of what Maura just said, they're so lazy. Nobody wants to do the work. Nobody wants to go to their districts and explain to their districts why they're voting the way they are, why they're opposing Donald Trump's insurrection against the United States of America, why they might support a minimum wage hike. It's it, that's really that's really the best way to put it. They're just phoning it in and nobody has the courage of their conviction to do what's right. And then to go hold town hall meetings and keep telling their constituents why they did what they did and why it was the right thing to do. That, that actually works. But, but I think Maura's right. Right now, they're just, they're, they are engaging in lazy politics, lowest common denominator politics. And for them right now, that just means bowing and scraping to Donald Trump and little else. Well, Margay and Charlie Sykes, thank you both for being on this morning. We turn now to the continued investigation into the January 6th attack at the Capitol. The Justice Department has announced on Friday that it has charged more than 300 people with crimes related to the attack, at least 280 of whom have been arrested. Acting Deputy Attorney General John Carlin said the investigation into those responsible is moving at a speed and scale that is unprecedented, and rightly so. Those responsible must be held to account, and they will be. Carlin's comments came just one day after acting Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman told lawmakers there are indications Trump supporters want to attack the Capitol again during President Joe Biden's first address to Congress, which is expected later this month. NBC News reports Justice Department officials say they've expanded the number of lawyers and investigators devoted to the case of domestic terrorism. We will continue to follow this. And now to the latest surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Yesterday, he admitted that some of his behavior with women, quote, may have been insensitive after a second former aide spoke out against him. In a statement, the governor, governor said in part, quote, I now understand that my interactions may have been insensitive or too personal 
and that some of my comments, given my position, made others feel in ways I never intended. I acknowledge some of the things that I, uh, I have said have been misinterpreted as unwanted flirtation. To the extent anyone felt that way, I am truly sorry about that. Cuomo said he would cooperate with a sexual harassment probe led by the state attorney general, Letitia James. This comes after receiving criticism for his initial decision to have a federal judge he appointed handle the investigation. Former aide, 25-year-old Charlotte Bennett, told The New York Times, I understood that the governor wanted to sleep with me and felt horribly uncomfortable and scared. Governor Cuomo has denied the claims and tells the paper he believed he had been acting as a mentor and had never made advances toward Miss Bennett, nor did I ever intend to act in any way that was inappropriate. Bennett's accusations come just days after former special advisor to the governor, Lindsay Boylan, detailed her alleged harassment, including a forced kiss. Cuomo has also denied her claims. The White House is backing the investigation. Here is Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday. President Biden has been consistent that he believes that every woman should be heard, should be treated with respect and with dignity. Charlotte should be treated with respect and dignity. So should Lindsay. And there should be an independent uh, review looking into these allegations. And that's certainly something he supports and we believe should move forward. Both of New York's U.S. Senators, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, along with White House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, all signaled this weekend they would like to see the matter referred to Letitia James. This all comes as Cuomo continues to grapple with the political fallout over his handling of the state's nursing home during the pandemic, which is facing a federal investigation. Coming up, the U.S. officially points the finger at Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So why does the White House refuse to punish the Saudi leader? Plus, pro-democracy protesters met with deadly force while demonstrating against the military coup in Myanmar. The president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, joins us next on Morning Joe. The U.N. Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations. And they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. 
Historically, uh, and even in recent history, Democratic and Republican administrations, there have not been sanctions put in place for the leaders of foreign governments where we have diplomatic relations and even where we don't have diplomatic relations. And we be believe there is more effective ways to uh, make sure this doesn't happen again and to also be able to leave room to work with the Saudis on areas where there is mutual agreement, where there is interest, national interest for the United States. That is what diplomacy looks like. That is what a, a complicated global engagement Jen. looks like. And we have made no secret and been clear we are going to hold them accountable and on the global stage. The White House is defending its decision to not punish Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman after the release of the U.S. intelligence report that linked the Crown Prince to the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. According to The New York Times, officials said a consensus developed inside the White House that the cost of that breach in Saudi cooperation on counterterrorism and in confronting Iran was simply too high. As far as the report goes, the newly declassified document describes the prince of having absolute control over the kingdom's intelligence organizations and said it would have been highly unlikely for an operation like the killing of Khashoggi to be carried out without his approval. As a candidate, Biden pledged to make Saudi Arabia a pariah over that killing. The Washington Post publisher and CEO Fred Ryan released a statement reading in part, quote, The report has brought the facts to light. Now the man who authorized this brutal murder must be held fully accountable for it. More than two years have gone by since Jamal's unthinkable death. It is time the United States and freedom-loving nations around the world ensure there is justice for Jamal. Let's bring in the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas. Richard, um, so let's talk about uh, competing interests here. Uh, first, the United States, obviously, has always seen Saudi Arabia as a key ally, not just militarily, but also economically, probably more, military, more militarily now uh, than, than even economically. Uh, so uh, tough decisions to make. Obviously, we're going to continue dealing with China, despite Hong Kong, despite reports of concentration camps in China, uh, just like Prince Gokroft, uh, you know, stayed engaged with China and Bush stayed engaged with China after Tiananmen Square. In this case, though, uh, you you have a killing that is of a, of a Virginia resident, a Washington Post columnist, uh, and uh, something that is so egregious uh, that it is it, it's hard to turn our heads away from. Talk about the balancing act that uh, the Biden administration, uh, as well as the Trump administration before it, uh, went through. Look, Joe, you're exactly right in the way you set it up. And it, it applies to China. It applies, say, to Putin. We just signed a nuclear deal with him right after he, he tried to poison to death his principal political uh, rival after he did what he's done in Ukraine. Uh, this is a balancing act, and it's actually split the foreign policy establishment. Some have said we should have nothing to do with Mohammed bin Salman. The problem is he's likely to be the king of Saudi Arabia for decades. He's uh, quite popular at, at, at home. Uh, Saudi Arabia still matters in the energy space, 
It matters in terms of counterterrorism. It matters, obviously, in terms of pressing Iran. We want to get them out of Yemen. And we also want to bring about a normalization of relations with uh, Israel. So the question is, how do you express your, your moral and every other form of uh, distaste or horror? Because this clearly happened only because this guy approved it. At the same time, we've got a foreign policy to conduct. So my guess is the way the Biden administration will come out is the president won't meet with them. He's not going to get invited uh, to the United States, much less the, the Oval Office. But the United States will find ways to continue to work with, with Saudi Arabia. This is realpolitik. Yeah, so the Trump administration obviously uh, maintained close ties with him, uh, Jared Kushner especially. Uh, how much of a change is this Biden administration move uh, away from the Trump administration? And do you think they struck the right balance? I think they'll move away on some things. One we've seen, which is Yemen, the holding up of the major arms sales. The United States is no longer going to facilitate Saudi operations in Yemen, that's a, that's a big deal. You won't have the kind of personal interaction that you had between uh, the president on one hand and Jared Kushner and, uh, and Mohammed bin Salman. So I think the tone of the relationship will change, the distancing selectively will change. But on other issues, as I mentioned, on, on Iran, uh, on the hopes of getting the Saudis to normalize with Israel, maybe creating, doing some things that would hold open the possibility of a two-state solution with the Palestinians. I think the administration will continue to work with them. So there, I think they've essentially got it right, the Biden administration. Look, it's awkward. Uh, I've suggested this uh, in social media and I've gotten hammered for it. People I respect, mm -hmm. like Nick Kristoff and Jake Tapper, have taken the other side of the, the conversation. But I do think this is the only sustainable policy. We can tilt against this. The United States can refuse to have anything to do with Mohammed bin Salman, but we cannot prevent him from ascending to the crown. He is likely to run his country for decades. And I just think the real question is, and over that time, can we move the Saudis in some desirable directions, maybe even using this as leverage? And I would say we should try. Uh, Jonathan mm -hmm. Lemire is with us and has a question for you. Jonathan. Richard, I actually have two. Let's skip elsewhere on the globe and maybe hit you. You could hit briefly on two different uh, other countries. Today, the President Biden uh, is meeting virtually uh, with the president of Mexico. Immigration is going to be top line on that discussion. Uh, maybe you could give us your sense as to what you anticipate uh, could come from that meeting. And also Myanmar. We saw, of course, more violence uh, in recent days. The U.S., of course, has strongly condemned what has happened there. These demonstrators being killed. You know, what more could the U.S. be doing there? How, do, how does the does Biden administration navigate what is a, obviously a tricky situation uh, in Asia? Yeah, with Myanmar, it's tough. We've already issued limited sanctions, asset freezes and the like against the, the leaders of this military coup. But we don't have an extensive relationship, so there's not a lot we can take away. Countries like China are willing to step in. So I really think this is going to work out locally. And right now, the, the military forces, they are behaving abominably. They're mowing down peaceful protesters. The real question is whether that dynamic uh, changes. Quite honestly, there's not a whole lot we can do. With Mexico, you've got this nationalist populist president, uh, Lopez Obrador. He is, I think, pressuring us by allowing people to come to the border. The real question is, can we establish a foundation on this relationship? One possibility is through vaccines, whether as the United States reaches a point rather quickly where we're going to have potentially the ability, you know, excess vaccines, which we can export, whether we can reach some sort of a deal that we help Mexico stabilize its society and economy 
in return, we get resumed cooperation on the border. All right, Richard Haas, thank you so much for coming on this morning. And I, 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 I'm sorry, I wanted Richard. I'm sorry, I, I, Mika's. I'm going to say, why did you continue this segment? And Alex is going to say we had to go to break. But you brought up something really quickly that I think is so important that Americans need to start recognizing, and our leaders in Congress need to start recognizing. You talked about China. That if we, whatever we do, China can counteract it. <clears throat> That takes me back to the discussion, whether you're talking about Saudi Arabia, whether you're talking about the UAE, whether you're talking about a lot of our traditional allies in the Middle East. It's just like with the UAE a, a month or so ago. If we hadn't have sold them weapons, they would have bought them from China. Uh, we have the same thing now with Saudi Arabia. Yes, we can we can shut down Saudi Arabia. Uh, we can. Uh, we can be as aggressive as we want to uh, and and feel good about that. And maybe that's the right thing for us to do. But we are in a position we haven't been in since the Cold War, where if we turn our back on an ally who becomes a former ally, they don't just sit in the corner and wait for the United States to come back. They immediately turn to China. That is a dynamic we really haven't experienced since uh, the Cold War ended, is it? No, no you're, you're, you're spot on. Uh, Charles Krauthammer wrote a piece 30 years ago called The Unipolar Moment, that the United States stood astride the world after the end of the Cold War. Well, that might have been a moment, but it's long since gone. And even though our absolute power, our strength has gotten larger, our relative position in the world, Joe, has deteriorated, not because we've fallen, because of, but because of the rise of China and others. So our ability to, don to dominate, our ability to insist is increasingly diminished and others can step in. This is a world of increasingly distributed power. And the United States has to adjust its foreign policy to take this into account. All right, Richard, thank you very, very much. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.